Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our guest today is Tim Ray. Tim's calling from Alberta, Canada. He's from a family of farmers and has a bivocational ministry. He's a Lutheran pastor and also a farmer on a working farm in the prairies of Canada. So Tim, we want to welcome you to Leaving Egypt. And I know you well um, as a fellow Canadian, um, but um, a lot of people don't know a whole lot about Canada. So I want you to first thing to do is introduce yourselves to listeners, uh, who you are, give us a bit of a flavor of the prairies and of Canada as we begin this conversation. Well, very briefly, I'm a middle-aged guy, a father of three school-aged children. I, I live and raise live with those children and raise them along with my wife. Um, we would make a great uh, Hallmark movie because she is a total urbanite. And she's not a farmer. In fact, the longer we farm, the more she's convinced it's not her thing. So there's, there's a little bit of our family dynamic. Uh, we've been at this farm for about eight years. So, uh, personally, you know, it, but, but the farm itself has uh, been around since uh, 1910. So, um, now you asked me just to describe Alberta, the most famous place in all of Alberta is Banff, Canada. And, uh, this is a, a national treasure. It's a, it's a part of the Rocky mountains and, um, the 1988 Olympics, the winter Olympics were held in Calgary, which is about uh, 40 minutes from my farm. So that might locate us. Um, but unlike Banff, Canada, I live on the flat plains. We are in a cold, dry climate. It's frozen for about half the year. It's brown for most of it. And uh, whenever it rains, we give thanks to God. Amen. And when we talk about farms in Alberta, let's say a little bit about the size. Yeah, well, um, 100 years ago, farms were quarter section. And the whole prairie landscape was divided up into these half a mile by half a mile squares. And uh, most farms, uh, very quickly, if they survived the dirty 30s, grew to maybe a section, which was four quarter sections, one mile by one mile. And that's 640 acres. Um, I'm currently farming with my family. We, we own, the Ray family owns about 1,700 acres. And we manage about 3,000 acres of land collectively because we rent about as much as we own. And then we partner with another farmer who manages the land on our behalf, but, but raises our cattle on them. And he, he probably has another 1,000 acres. So, you know, we're like a four or 5,000 acre farm with uh, three households living on it. So you are also a Lutheran pastor. And most pastors I know... Uh, tell me that at the end of the week, they've got no time left to do anything else. So tell me about being a Lutheran pastor who's also farming with others 4,000 acres. Sure. Um, well, the perk of being bivocational is that I have the freedom to work as much as I want. So yeah, there's, there's no shortage of it. And, and interestingly, when I was a full-time pastor, there was no extra time. And so when you're a part-time pastor, there's no extra time either. Um, which is a wonderful spiritual exercise because we have to live within the constraints forgiven. It is what it is. And uh, learning to uh, walk with your feet on the ground at a walking pace actually um, is good for the soul versus uh, driving 100 kilometers an hour from this thing to that thing. So uh, I don't want to make it sound like my life's too romantic here, but uh, there's something, no matter what station in life you find yourself in, do. Living within those limits. So, how it works though is I, I like to say to my congregation, I provide a full suite of pastoral services by appointment. And uh, 
I'm blessed with a congregation that really, like, they, they did the whole program church thing. They were a missing church through the 1980s to the 1990s and the 2000s. They, they had a mortgage. They struggled to pay that mortgage. And so in the, in the very real living memory of this Lutheran church is how the program church kind of failed them. And so when I became their pastor eight years ago, uh, they, they were a depressed church. They'd been through some conflict and they weren't interested in having for programming, a big bustling youth program. Nobody wanted to volunteer for this or that, which turned out to be a real blessing to me because if I provided a tent of pastoral care and uh, showed up on Sunday prepared and I was kind to people, claim the gospel, they're happy. They're happy. And because they only pay me half time, for the first time in the congregation's history, they've not been under a budget crunch. So uh, they get less, you know, they're saving money. And, and, and what it gives me is then the freedom to use the rest of my time uh, for this uh, farming enterprise, which no doubt we'll be talking more about. We will be talking a whole lot more about this farming enterprise. Um, and I, I want to go there now. But to get there... A church pastor, a Lutheran, a deeply committed Christian, and a farmer. Tell us a little bit about the, the theological imagination that shapes you as a pastor who is a farmer or a farmer who is a pastor. How do you read this? Does that make sense, what I'm asking you? Yeah, absolutely, um, because I think about it every single day. Um, and this, is, this was the grand experiment eight years ago when I left a full-time pastorate to come and do this. It was an experiment to try and play out uh, what it's like to be a Christian in the world. In fact, when I was a full-time pastor in a rural community, I, I pastored many farmers and oil field workers. And um, kind of envied, I'd, I'd see them from my church office, I'd see them driving around and doing things in the day. And I wondered, huh, that looks kind of fun. And the thing was, is that they were they were working mostly with people who were not what you'd call committed Christians. They, they were in the mission field and I was in my office um, tending to the program of a, of a small, beautiful congregation of people. And what I yearned for in my heart was the chance to do a bit of both. I cherished the church, but I also wanted to dabble in the world that my parishioners were in. So uh, I got the chance. So um, the theology behind it, though, I'm indebted to my Lutheran tradition, which, you know, comes out of medieval theology, but this notion of a station in life, vocation, and uh, in our catechism, we teach that every Christian, every baptized person is called uh, to serve their neighbor, and that calling comes from God. And so, you know, the saying is, if you're a shoemaker, do, do your shoemaker thing trusting in God, and that's a holy vocation. In my case, I farm, trusting in God, loving my neighbor. Uh, that's a holy vocation. And as soon as I stop trusting God and stop loving my neighbor, um, I become a bane on the existence of others. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something we have to attend to all the time. And, and same thing as pastors. If I'm not trusting God and if I'm not loving my neighbor, well, what's this about? And one thing I cherish about being a part-time pastor is I have the freedom to say to my congregation, yes, I'm only available for these certain evening commitments, which means I'm free on Wednesday nights to go to men's curling in Iricana, which is among my most powerful ministries. But uh, but if I was a full-time pastor, no doubt other commitments would be creeping in and I would miss out on the uh, mutual joy I experience with my uh, blue-collar folks at the Iricana curling rink. So this, this um, description you, you've given of the shift that you made from program to pastoral, the, the phrase program church might be familiar to some, but it, I think it'll be quite unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners. I'm just wondering if you can um, tell us why, why you think the church became a program church, not just yours, but why was that form of church, uh, what, what made it come about? And it's so interesting that you said with your your Lutheran tradition actually is what you've returned to. So what what was going on where the church got kind of 
caught up in that program type of way of being. Yeah, well, this guy's written the books on this, but I'll uh, I'll answer it from my own language, you know, in my own words. Um, right with with the last century, we somehow gave into this idea that um, everybody needs to be a professional. Okay, and with the professionalization of things, then then you you form these set of contracts. And set of expectations, and the clergy was no different. He said, "Hey, well, we want to be a valid part of of Western culture. Right? This is where these program churches form. We want to be a valid part of Western culture. So uh, let's let's create a contract. And uh, out of that set of contracts, going to be a list of expectations. And then, um, as as part of that contract, the congregation is going to commit to feed into these certain activities. So so when I say program church, uh, what I'm picturing is." Every Sunday morning, there's a, a vibrant worship service. Um, usually, it's it's volunteer run, but somewhere at the front of it is a paid professional pastor. And then um, throughout the week, there would be some kind of um, group, usually formed around some kind of identity politic, politic, like like a women's Bible study, or a um, children's Sunday school, or a uh, youth uh, catechism program. And then the pastor's job is to make sure that those things are all uh, rolling out according to brand, right? So in, in the Lutheran case, it's like, yeah, you got to make sure that we say these certain words, that we memorize these certain verses, that we uh, tell this certain story, and everybody stays on brand. And as long as everyone keeps feeding into the system, um, every decade passes, and, and we have this vibrant church. And a vibrant church means it's full. Well, my congregation, along with many, many others, was like, you know what? We don't quite have the words to say it, but we'll tell you with our bodies, we're tired. We will not come to these things anymore. We will not send our kids to these things. In fact, we can't coerce our grandchildren into them. So um, we're forced, forced to take a step back and say, okay, well, what is God doing here uh, if not asking us to run a really nice programmed uh, church on the plains of, of uh, Alberta, Canada? So... You're working with a church that's seeking to figure out what does it mean to be God's people when we lay down those programs. But you're also a farmer. And I want to I shift a little bit to the farmer side of things. Um, because I'm an urban guy, and I know absolutely nothing about farming. But when I listen to people like Willie Nelson... Um, who may not be the best expert on farming, but when I listen to him sing, I begin to get the sense that there's trouble in the land, that farming actually isn't the kind of utopian, beautiful thing that, that perhaps it used to be, that, that, that huge challenges are going on confronting farming. So talk to us a little bit about what you've seen happen. Uh, you're familiar with uh, the Rebanks material where he talks about what farming was, the industrialization of farming and what it became. So from your experience, Tim, talk a little bit about what you see going on on the farms right now. Sure. Well, uh, just to make it very uh, personal and concrete, so I'm 44 years old. So... Um, the turn of the last millennia, I was heading off to university, right? It would have been 1997. There I was, an 18-year-old kid. And my parents said to me, Tim, I know you'd like to farm, but you better go get an education so that you can make a livelihood. Um, because our farm is, there's not going to be room for you here for another 20 years. Like, you know, um, and so that's not a new story. My grandfather told my dad the same thing. And I'll go and get an education. So, um, so when, yeah, what, why is that? Why could I not make a living on my family farm? I, and I asked that question of myself since I was 18 years old, you know, so off I went, studied agriculture. And anyways, in that time, um, I felt a call into ministry and I, and I took another call, but I grieved the fact I couldn't farm. I wasn't going to have that chance. Um, why? Why couldn't I? 
So there's this there's this thing called the financialization of things. You could Google that and you'll find articulate people that can tell you what that means and why it comes about. But I'll I'll, I'll take a stab at it. What financialization means, yeah. Yeah. It's the financialization of everything. So we live in a in a in in a under dollars and cents. We live in a in a commodity. I want to get it right. It's, it's okay already. You can see I'm befuddled because it's complicated. Why can't I make a living from it? Part of it is because to purchase the land is a massive barrier. And in an era when a dollar is not worth a dollar, a dollar keeps lowering in value because of policies that are made. So a dollar lowers in value. So land becomes attractive and people with money will choose to purchase land instead of holding cash because the land does not seem to lose value. It holds its value. Oh, my dad bought land at $500 an acre back in 1989. That's how he got into farming, $1989, $500 an acre. That same land now is worth $7,000 an acre. But it's not that the land is any more productive. The land is, is what it is. It's just that's how much less our dollar is worth. Okay. And so all of us, including farmers, are trying to work in a system where the, the, the labor that we have traded for cash does not hold its value. And so we're forced to choose what to invest it in. And smart people with cash know, I'm not going to keep it in cash. I'm going to dump money into farmland. And now, big, big corporate bodies like... Um, hedge funds and, and pension funds are now coming into prairie provinces and purchasing large swaths of farmland, not because they have any interest in farming it at all, but they want to hold an asset that has value now and in the future. And, and it's inflation proof, because even if the dollar continues to denigrate, that land still can do something. It's real. and. Um, what it's doing, though, is it's also pushing farmers off the land because you can't afford to get in. The value of the land is not in sync with the productive value of the land. And so that puts a lot of pressure on who's there. Now, who, who has some advantage is if you already own thousands and thousands of acres, you can go and borrow money, which is great because it's tax-free. You borrow money, it's tax-free income. And that money's only going to get cheaper and cheaper the less the dollar's worth. So the bigger you are, the more money you can borrow to go and buy more land. And, and the, it, the advantage is in the one who has access to this capital. Now, there's incentive for those who own land to get out. When I, when I, uh, when my dad dies, I stand to inherit about $4 million of land. That's a really decent retirement. In fact, that's more that's my retirement and my kids' retirement that I can lock in with one sale. And so this generation of baby boomers is doing that right now, or they're, or they're wrestling with that. A lot of them don't want to sell the land, but their kids actually can't come back and buy it. And it's worth so much. Why not sell it out? Use that money, buy mutual funds, and then everyone can have a nice cushy life, one or two generations, and then, uh, and then what to be determined. So if I was to describe what Egypt is, I have just described Egypt. And if you're somewhere in the middle or top of the pyramid scheme in Egypt, it's a very good position. But if you're trying to do something different or you're working among the bottom, uh, you're in a losing battle, you know. So it's a yeah, it's a systemic challenge. Yeah. So one question is: you began by saying, in your Lutheran theology, you have vocation, whether it's a shoemaker or pastor maker or a farmer. So when you see that, when you experience that Egypt in financialization and commodification, what? What happens to you as 
as a Christian shaped by vocation. What does that do to you? How do you engage that? So in, in catechism that I teach to teenage kids, part of our Lutheran formation, and I don't know if they remember it or not, but in my 20s, when I revisited it, it is with me. And now as I teach it, we have these Ten Commandments that we get through Moses. And one of the commandments is thou shalt not steal. And Luther teaches, um, what does this mean? Okay, the student asks, what does this mean? And the answer is, we are to fear and love God. And thus, not only are we supposed to not steal from our neighbor, we are supposed to help and protect what belongs to them. And so as a farmer on land, and you could imagine Ray Ranch, it's my family's farm, Ray Ranch. It has two main owners right now, my dad and my uncle. And I stand to inherit about half of that, half of that, because my dad owns about half. And it would be nice if I could inherit my uncle's half as well. But because of tax law, because it's basically the bulk of his estate, it's going to pass on to his kids. And, and I'm going to lose control of about half of our Ray family farm because his kids don't live in Iracana. Some of them farm in, in other communities. Some of them aren't farmers at all. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to end up going somewhere else unless I can form some kind of partnership with them to keep farming their land. But that's a tough sell because it's worth so much. Okay, one of the commitments I have to have in myself is to say, Tim, your job is not to try and steal an estate from your cousins. Your job is to fear and love God, and help preserve what belongs to them. And if I could enter into a covenant relationship with all the owners of Ray Ranch, not only might I preserve our farm for another generation, not only might I provide unending ecological goods and services to the landscape and society as a whole, I actually might actually sustain and enrich a relationship with my cousins. Right? I'd actually, how in a way, help them to remain tied to the place that they were raised in such a way that might shape and inform how they tie themselves to the community that they live in. And I'm not going to get paid a dime for any of this. But it's part of a way of living that's open to God and God's good purposes that brings people together rather than pushes people out and off their landscapes. So, so you, you, th that, that is Ray Farm. What about all the neighbors around, all the other farmers, that your neighbors? What's happening to them? Yeah, so everybody is, is, is going through the same thing. The only, there's, the only thing is, does a given farm have a successor, right? In my neighborhood, almost nobody wants to sell their farm, even though they might be scrimping along. Um, nobody really wants to sell their farm. And by the way, when you look at these farms, you can't tell who's scrimping along and who's not. Because if you own a farm, you can go and get loans so that you can build bigger barns, bigger bins, and nicer equipment. So you don't know actually who's doing well and who's doing poor because, because you just all you know is who's cashed in their loans or not, you know, who, who's cashed in on the system. And so can't tell by looking at them, but my neighbors, you look around, and about half of them have successors, which is a bittersweet curse, because it means if you have someone on the land, you can't sell it without incurring a moral injury as a family. Now, the flip side is if you don't have someone on the land, you as soon as you sell it, you're free, because now you have millions and millions of dollars to go and do whatever you want. But you now lose your family connection to the land. And so in my neighborhood, most of the farmers are baby boomers. And then there's a few of us 40-year-olds floating around. Um, most of those 40-year-olds have off-farm work. They're mechanics. Or they, they might run a shop on the farm. So they, they grow crops and they fix machinery. Or they grow crops and they are a professional trucker. Or in my case, we ranch cattle 
and I provide religious goods and services. And so all of us are kind of doing this thing. And um, everyone's looking around for the next kind of fall. Um, or, yeah, because then one of us is going to get to farm that land. Can I just take you back to the point you made about relationships that really struck me? That, um, that God builds relationships and this financialization that's happening is fragmenting and fracturing relationships and divorcing people from each other and from the land. That's the, that's the picture I'm getting from what you're describing. And your, your struggle to you know, be one of God's people in this Egypt is to somehow maintain those relationships and to, to help people see the point of that. I mean, the difficulty is, isn't it, that as we live within this um, this system, this hyper-liberal system, we do, it's like swimming in a sea, you don't notice what's going on around you. And a lot of people can't actually see what's happening, but you see it so clearly. And I'm just wondering about your your conversations with your fellow farmers who perhaps are, you know, really quite close to selling or, you know, don't quite get what you see. What are those conversations like? It's very sensitive. Um, it's as sensitive as asking somebody about their sex life. That's how sensitive it is when you try to broach um, a conversation about what one's family plans are for the farm. And, and part of it is because their estates are wrapped up in this. Their personal hopes and dreams. Um, and then all the family tensions that that pervade the generations, right? And so there could be disappointment that none of my kids want to farm. And if I talk to you about this, Tim, I have to admit that archetypally, okay, here's one of the barriers. Archetypally, to get old is to become blind. And I see this in the story of Isaac, right? Isaac becomes blind which son he's going to bless and there are other stories typically of this but it's like a willingness to become blind and and one of the problems i think is that in egypt there's a generation around me that in a way is blind they're not willing to see why don't my kids want to be here oh because i spent the last 40 years rimping away uh, and and showing them how i'd rather be somewhere else and I don't want to, there are really sweet things about it too, but it, it's, it's laden with risk. It's interesting in, in, in the context of Jenny's question that one of the things that stood out in your descriptions, uh, because what you're describing, uh, we call it Egypt, is a whole economic system has come into place. You, you've described it as financialization which is constantly binding up people. Um, and if I hear you correctly, that what's happening is that now large corporations are coming and taking over and creating agribusinesses, creating massive, massive ways of um, using the land. And so I, I got several questions coming out of that because you yourself have, you have an imagination, you have a dream, you have a desire that, you, that you're working. And I want to get to that. But, I mean, a lot of people will be listening to this and be going, well, what's wrong with agribusinesses buying up all this land and just doing it big? What, what's wrong with that, Tim? So, you know, you're in Egypt. Because you've lost your imagination. You use that term, Alan, imagination. Yep, absolutely. Or you know you're, you're in Babylonian captivity because you have lost your memory of another way. Yeah. And, and this, these aren't simple things. Like the whole um, prairies of Alberta, was of Canada, was established under a colonial extractive system. So we can't even hearken back to a day when it was um, noble and pure. Okay, we're trying to remember something we've all we've forgotten. 
Mm-hmm. What's wrong with agribusiness? When I read the Bible, it's been pointed out to me that demons, demons in the New Testament do three things. They push people away from their ability to work. Uh, they push people away from their families and communities. And they push people away from their story, their religious life. And in the case of Jesus, if you read his healing stories, it's not always in every case all three, but usually one of them, he says, go and show yourself to the priests. Go back to your village. Go, go and live. And the problem with what I've described and what you point as 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 agribusiness, when it gets so big, what I'm seeing is it's pushing people away from their families, away from their communities, away from their vocation as landholders. Pretty soon, robots are going to be are going to be managing the landscape, and there might be no stopping it. And there's only one way I can imagine it's good is that it frees up people now to walk on the land. And to pay attention to the commission that God has given that land in our own narratives. God says, bring forth life. Most of what big agribusiness is doing is trying to kill things. That, and, and so it just doesn't show me that it's bringing life. I do business with agribusiness. There's no other way to get my fertilizer. There's no other way to market my cattle. Mm. But because I do business with them, I also feel the pinch. When I sign up, when I shake hands with my neighbor, hey, can you haul my bales or could you source me some feed? We work out a plan. We shake hands on it. We might send a text message. So we have a written agreement. It's a covenant. 100% of the time, my neighbors come through. And if they don't, we have to work it out together. When you when you sign a contract with these big companies, they can just send you a letter of notice that says, I know we said we were going to buy your cattle for this, but uh, things have changed and we're not going to do that anymore. Right? So it's just not a fair playing field. And um, yeah, it just, it, it erodes community life. I, I don't want to sound too ideological and say we need a peasant's revolt and get rid of all agribusiness. There's certain things that these companies have mastered, which is the interconnection of people through markets with supplies that, that we all need. But the table's not level and it's gone too far. And so we need to imagine how else might we do this. So we need to imagine. Yeah. So let, let's go down that road because you are doing some of that imagining. Um, and I want to talk about that, but again, I, I want to set it back in this perspective that you as a Christian who happens to be a pastor and who is vocationally in, in, in God's economy, a farmer, you are seeing the disintegration of family, of people, and, and in many ways, a loss of an appreciation of what the land does. And so something, in our conversations, Tim, something sparked in you around what do we do about this? Uh, tell that story. Um, yeah, I'll take at it from this angle. A few years ago, I was invited into a, a group called uh, a Regenerative Agriculture Laboratory. And that was some kind of jingo among community organizers of saying, we want to have a grassroots conversation about how we can promote regenerative agriculture practices in Alberta. And in order to do that, the belief was we want to have a grassroots movement. Great. Who knows? Maybe Pope Francis commissioned the, the, the group. I have no idea. But it just um, oozes with um, the kind of principles that uh, Catholic social teaching would have. You know, it has to be grassroots based so that it's real and the solutions are coming 
um, from the people who are are feeling the pinch and also feeling that the uh, the winds on their on their back that are moving the needle. Um, regenerative agriculture as a whole um, is a way of using biological systems and big picture thinking, partner with natural processes to generate abundant food and a holistic life. Okay, if that's too jargony, forgive me, but I'm trying to capture some. So it means less chemical, less spray, and it means letting things as crazy as saying, what are my weeds teaching me? My weeds are trying to heal the earth. What are they teaching me about how I could farm? So this is regenerative agriculture. So that in and of itself is a set of practices that stands a little bit counter to um, the things that big, corporate agribusiness could control. So I'm enamored by this. And I get involved with this group. And in the group, okay, there's about 20 of us there. And in the group, we're asked, how are we going to make a difference? And I've told you, I've bumped up against some problems. Uh, I don't have enough capital to compete in this market. And I'm thinking, we can change all the practices we want. We don't change, if we don't make some change around the way that we um, structure our businesses and our business relations, we're toast. Uh, which, by the way, has all the kind of common parallels we have in our congregations too. You know, you can keep changing the deck all you want. We're in we're in a massive cultural pressure cooker, and if we're not attending to that, um, we're missing the boat. So, in that group of twenty people, I meet this lady who's responsible for a hundred and fifty million dollars that she needs to invest in regenerative agriculture to appease some portfolio that she's managing and being the sly businessman i am i'm like wherever she's going i'm gonna go you know like follow the money people anyways i say that a bit facetiously but nonetheless in this group there of the group of 20 there's about four or five of us that coalesce around this idea of how we can create investment structures that instead of pushing people off of the land, make space for people to come onto the land. And so there, the investors, um, the initial idea was, well, let's go and get generous billionaires who want to just throw money at, at goodwill farmers and let's make a big difference for the planet and for communities. But the more I think and pray and listen and watch, I can see that the main investors into these business models are already there on the land. They are the families that own the land and want to see it farmed and stewarded for the sake of their community. We don't have to go and chase the whims of rich people with billions of dollars, because frankly, billions of dollars is a drop in the bucket. It won't even make a difference. But if we can employ the hearts, the human capital, the land, the expertise, the knowledge of local farmers, and find ways to put them in a business structure that does not allow for petty fights, you know, like there's there's all kinds of complexity that has to come into this, okay? We're using, we're trying to develop legal structures that could basically be replicated across many communities. We don't want to have a farm the size of Alberta. I want to see many, many robust farms. So what if we took Ray Ranch and, and we partnered up with a, ba with a baby boomer, okay? Someone in their 70s who doesn't have a successor. I don't want to run their farm. I'm going to build a business structure and a covenantal relationship that says, let's, let's build into the constitution of our company principles that will feed life and the values that sustained us for the last hundred years. Hmm. Let's build it right in. And so that I can then go as the CEO of this company and hire a farmer that will then work with me to farm their land. And I think realistically, we probably, you'd want a farm that could employ four or five households. It's a pretty nice sized farm. And and that would take some creativity. It would take top-notch management. It would take some, some restraint. You can't have somebody taking more than their fair share. 
But four or five people allows room for someone who's good at business, someone who's good at mechanics, someone who's good at uh, land deals, maybe livestock, someone who's good at uh, cropping, right? um, someone who knows how to truck. And you could, you could build a company around those local skills, deep generational knowledge that then um, farms the land in a way so that it'll be there in 100 years or 300 years or 1,000 years. This is amazing to hear this um, discussion around covenantal governance structures and laying it down for an intergenerational vision that's going way beyond our own time. Mm -hmm. This is so powerful. And as you mentioned before, the Catholic social teaching um, principles around this are really evident in what you're saying, particularly subsidiarity. You know, the, the principle that, you know, something shouldn't be done at higher authority if it can be done lower down and decisions should be taken closest to those they affect. And also where you've been describing that beautiful description just now of people's different gifts and skills being brought in appropriately. So we might call that vocational responsibility. What's your unique calling as a person within this business structure? And... um I'm really curious to know about how you've, well, where have you got to, but how have you um, discerned what these covenantal pr- principles need to be? Uh, and have you have you found through your prayer life that you've had particular insights about what these covenantal principles or, bus- or business structures, elements within, you know, the deeds or the covenantal deeds that you're drawing up or thinking about? You know, how, how has your, your, your inspiration through your prayer life inter- intersecting with the business? Yeah, um, I do not want to paint myself as an over-spiritualized person. Okay? Um, but I do hope and I trust that God's Spirit is at work in and through me. And um, yeah, through my prayer, meditation, and time. One of the big advantages of trying to work through this very difficult problem is it's slow already two years ago i approached two of my neighbors uh, men my age right they were the successors and i pitched my idea independently loosely threw it out there and the feedback i got from one was damn let's just spare us the problem and just rent me your land and i'll take care of it all Right. So he didn't he didn't quite catch the vision. Didn't then. quite catch it. No. Yeah. And then the other guy um, was in the middle of trying to work out some really complicated and, and long standing um, state stuff with his bit main business partner. And, he, and adding me to the mix was too complicated. So those are my two closest folks. And what that forced me to do was to take pause and step back. I had to go slow. And then the other thing, in having time, I, I already had the ideas. I already had the principles that I was going to build into this company. Um, and then realizing, if I come with all the answers, I've already defeated anything, any chance of this being a robust and mutual process. But what I can do by having time and prayer is that when it comes time to represent what my desire is, what my what what vision God has implanted in me, I pray to God, the Holy Spirit gives me the words to articulate that so that when I'm around the table, I can invite others into it. Now, now in this time, I'm lucky I've got longtime family friends of ours that I didn't see as a, as a mutual partnership at first because they're six miles from us. Our farms aren't right side by side. But there's a farmer, and, and he's a Christian man, and he's 70-ish or in his 60s. He's in his 60s, sorry. He's kind of still young for a farmer. But he sees, he sees things are getting harder for me. And he came and approached me and said, you know, Tim, um, I will not sell you my land. But um, if if you wanted to farm it, I bet we could work a deal. And he outright said, I would charge you less than market value 
in exchange for um, a set of assurances. And basically, he wanted to see it farmed in a sustainable, regenerative way. Uh, he wanted to remain a part of the farm. Uh, he wanted to see my commitments to the community. And that's why he was he was talking with me about it. And finally, if ever one of his daughters wanted to come back and be part of the farm in some way, it was important to him that that option remain open. Um, oh, yeah. And he wanted to own the land, which is perfect. Because at rising interest rates, the one thing I most certainly don't need to do is own it. I cannot afford it. But but here in this arrangement, um, all of a sudden a door opens. Now, again, these are very, very slow conversations, but we've talked two or three times since. His daughter's moving back into the area. She's a veterinarian, so she brings a whole set of skills. She brings the ability to go and earn money elsewhere. She has a, a background in sheep, which is not my expertise. And um, because of the longstanding family trust, um, there's a conversation we can have. Now, how it will unfold? I don't know. I've been clear about what I want. I'm looking for covenantal relationships so that we can sustain these farms for another 300 years. And I'm willing to give up a lot in order to see that happen because I can see we'd all be enriched by it. He shares the vision. And so we're going to approach that conversation. In the meantime, I'm here in a neighboring community for overnight meetings with my regenerative agriculture lab. And I'm hoping that when I leave here today, I will have the basic framework of a legal model that Mrs. Goodwill, the, the lady with $150 million, her and her lawyers have, have, have been working out how you actually might structure these kind of deals. And so she's a real key asset for me, even if she never invests in my farm. Her connections, her expertise is very, very helpful to me. So I want to keep bridging those gaps, layering these conversations. And I hope that. Um, when I'm on the uh, Left Egypt a long time ago podcast in five years, I'm able to come here glowingly telling you about all the awesome things that, that we've been able to pull off in Alberta, Canada because of uh, this work. But but I know for every step forward, there's two steps back. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's fraught with complexity. That's an amazing story. I'm really struck by it. So if people want to look this up, to the, the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. Is there a place they can find the information that you've been describing? Some of it, some of the story? Yeah, so if you went to um, to Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, that's the nonprofit organization that had the vision and, and brought together the group of farmers and they're telling the story of this process um, kind of in a high-level way, you know, maybe not in the same uh, detail that I am. But uh, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is the group here in Alberta. And uh, if you went and checked them out, tell a little bit of the story. I'd also encourage you to look up for-purpose companies, for-purpose companies. It's a, it's a specific kind of legal structure that uh, many European countries and some American states have. And it's something that I'm, I'm pushing um, my group to see if we can form that legal structure here in Alberta. Um, those two things, I think, provide uh, some background into what I'm talking about. And of course, if you look up anything to do with regenerative agriculture, uh, the UK has a lot of information, as does uh, Dewey throughout North America. Uh, there, that's a big piece of this story, too, how it's coming together. We just wanted to say a very big thank you to you, our listeners, and especially to our paid subscribers. Being a paid subscriber not only gives you early access to podcast episodes as they come out, but it also soon will include access to our new monthly discussion forum. Starting in late January, paid subscribers can participate and join together with us in a deeper reflection over Zoom. We're excited to offer a space for you to join us and others in discussions about the challenges facing our churches and to explore the imaginative ways in which Christians are forming communities of hope. So do consider becoming a paid subscriber. It will help us continue this work and enable you to meet others on this journey. Just click the link below in the description or go to our Substack page, leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. So a big thank you again to all our paid subscribers. Now back to the episode. So I... Uh, Question: 
ask you is that I can't imagine, I may be wrong, but I can't imagine that the world you've just described, coming out of a whole imagination and theology, and the church that you're a part of, I can't imagine that these are two totally separate spheres. Um, and so part of it is, how do these things interact? Uh, the, and, and, then, and then the other part of the question was, and what sustains you in the midst of all of this? Because you've talked about it being slow. You've talked about sharing this imagination and from the feedback, it, you go, they're not getting what I'm saying kind of thing. So those two different questions. But the first one is what sustains you, Tim? And I heard, I heard you say something about my group. I don't know whether that rang for you, but, but what sustains you and what's this group? There's a couple of, I'm part of a couple of groups. So I'm part of a group of pastors uh, called the Community of Companions that meets. And this group of clergy is an ecumenical group. And we uh, meet to share stories and to discern together in God's word how to lead in these times when we don't really have the answers. So that group has been very encouraging to me. They're not in the weeds of my life. And, and every time we meet, someone in the group always says, Tim, Whatever you're up to, it just sounds so exciting. Keep going, keep going. So that's encouraging. Uh, my regenerative agriculture lab, my the, the group around uh, capital, they're also very encouraging. They they you know they they hear my passion. Um, those are money people. Like they're like, hey, get your act together. But also, um, let's let's keep going. Let's keep talking this through. Um, so that's an encouragement. And then, of course, it's really important that I actually enjoy the work of farming and, and the discovery of, uh, of life and friendship on our land base with my uncle, with my dad, with my parents, with my kids, with my neighbors. And so, so that, is, that is sustaining, too. Also, mm. going to the curling rink, like these people, whether they see it or not, right, we're all affected by this, these global forces. And I feel in my heart love for them, right? And and so I want to push and say, look, my life's going to matter to you, and my, my crazy ideas are going to matter to you. When when we're all won over by a covenant to each other, that gets us through a real crisis one day, you know, that none of us see coming. So some of that, and and of course, um, I love my church group. When I go to worship with my congregation, these people love, adore, and respect me. And, and that carries me a long way. Because mm. they're, they're inviting me to be myself and submit my life to God along with them. And, and that is sustaining. And I know that every week I get to be with these people. And to think of doing this work without that sustaining Christian fellowship um, would be impossible. So I would never denigrate my congregational life. What I'm preparing for is the day that they can no longer afford to pay me. And I pray that our, our ministry to and for each other is so profound that I will have no choice to keep ministering among them and with them because it's not about the pay. Um, and, and that's the difference between a job and a covenantal calling. Yeah. So. Can I ask a bit about your, um, the people in your congregation and, and your, your way of leading? We were talking a bit about vocational responsibility just now, and I was wondering about how you accompany them individually as they perhaps uh, discerning their own calling. What, what's the nature of your relationship with them in, in that sense? Yeah, some of it's intuitive and some of it's intentional, all right? But my way of leading mostly, the way that's natural and that is sustainable for me, is friendship. That's, that's the way to really make it work. 
And churches are a volunteer organization. People come and go on their own volition. And as a pastor, I, I got to work with who I got. Okay. And so I try to approach people as friends. Um, I'm there as pastor, though, and I'm responsible for the pastoral office. They think they're helping me run the church, right? I think I'm helping them run the church. And, and that's a good way to be. Now, one thing about our church that we're, I, I, I'm trying to help them see alongside me. In my neighboring community where I pastor 20 minutes from my farm, I'm a commuter, just like everyone else in Egypt. I'm a commuter. Our town grew from 20,000 people to now almost a catchment over 100,000 in two decades. So it's completely changed. It is completely changed. And our congregation cannot tell you who our neighbors are. One thing that's happening is um, in a town that booms, the infrastructure never keeps up with the houses. And so there's a shortage of affordable space for nonprofit groups. And basically, that's the role of mainline churches in Canada is just to provide housing for uh, nonprofit groups. That, that's become our vocation. But we just realized here in the last little while who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is the 250 to 300 people that come through our property every week. Many of them spend more time in our building than our members do. We have four or five nights of uh, addiction support group, uh, Cocaine Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and they are our best renters because they're so scared we'll kick them out because nobody wants to rent to drug addicts. Mm. And I'm telling you, they are our best renters. Now, of course, they barely pay anything to us. They give us a reason to exist. They, they use our building four or five nights a week. Uh, we have a, a Christian homeschooling group uh, that's basically made up of, of kids who didn't make it in this public system. They just couldn't hack it because bullying or ADHD or dysfunction at home, whatever. And, and they end up in this 20-kid homeschooling group in our church. Uh, community choir meets. Um, another fledgling congregation rents our space, um, a quilting group. Okay. And, and what we've decided to do in the next few months is to take members of our church and sit down with these, these people, a representative of their various groups and just say, Hey, um, it dawned on us. You guys are the most important people in our lives. Um, and we want to get to know you better. Is there anything that you wish for us to know about you? Is there any way that we can Use our assets to serve you better. Is there, um, if you're if you're willing to go there, um, are there uh, movements of the spirit among your group that are shaping uh, the life of this city that we need to be aware of? And and again, I don't have a prescriptive result, but but if we take seriously these relationships. Well, maybe maybe we got something to learn. Like these 20 kids. So there's 20 cars that come in and out of our little parking lot every day. Well, these these moms and dads are working commuters just like me. Well, we got something in common. And is there a way that we can find out what's going on in their lives? And just so you know, right adjacent to us using our parking lot is Scotiabank, um, which is one of the five big banks in Canada. And uh, what's Scotiabank interested in? financialization so here is a here is a dialogue partner in egypt or the likes of me and all the other mortgage holders in eritrea that maybe we could we could open a conversation with if if there's a willingness so you're describing again an, another um aspect of catholic social teaching which is described sometimes as uh, intermediary institutions, of which the church is one, so the small bodies that make up civil society. And you're describing exactly what we should be doing, which is building relationships with our neighbouring institutions and uh, noticing who are our neighbours, you know, whether it's a bank or a care home or a charity or an association or a club, that the church needs to be in relationship with its neighbours. Yeah. And, uh, and also through the congregation, through the members of the congregation, there'll be hundreds of connections uh, across across your your area where you live. The, you know, there are big distances, of course, but um, through your congregation, there'll be so many uh, potential opportunities there 
to build more relationships. And just going back to what you said before about how God builds relationships and the the demons do the opposite. They split, they divide, they push people away. So it's very clear um, what you're doing is uh, absolutely of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just one one other question I was thinking about was, you know, which actually you've partly started to answer because a lot of your story is is a rural story, but it struck me that some of the things that you've you've learned through your practices. Something you said, for example, like, what can my weeds teach me? I thought it was a great um, sentence. And I was thinking, for people in the city, what's the equivalent there? You know, what are the kind of practices that you've you've learned through your farming experience that um, perhaps might be helpful for a pastor or a, a minister in a, in a city con- you know, context? He's not necessarily farming the land, but he's maybe farming people, you know, in a sense of being a gardener and cultivating relationships in in his or her area? It's a big question. I'm going to take one stab at it, all right? I realized as a farmer, pretty soon in, thanks to the wisdom of other farmers and YouTube and books and whatever, okay, I didn't come up with this on my own. Realized very soon, that I am not farming the land. Okay? The plants are farming the land. And it could well be that the microbes are farming the plants okay, to get what they need. And I could go on and on about this. It's, it's very profound. But when you see how life takes hold in terrestrial form, the land wants to take sunlight and trade it for mineralization of the soil. And both of these mediums are living biological processes. The means are the ends. If you want to have more growth, you have to allow the, the community of life to function. And so when I look at my congregation, I am not pastoring my congregation, right? I know I am, and I'm trying to be intentional and whatnot. But in my posture, right, God desires, or their hearts, their hearts desire to receive from God and to pour that into the world. Uh, Let me tell you this. When a, when a cool season grass, which Alberta, that's what we grow here, man. We grow cool season grasses. When a cool season grass is cut with scissors or a hay bind, okay, a piece of farm equipment, nothing happens. It's just a way of harvesting. But when a cool season grass has an ungulate come along, like a sheep or a cow or a bison or a deer, it comes and it rips at that grass, okay? And it takes off the top 30% of the grass because that's what the ungulate's mouth is meant to do. That animal is getting the most nutritious part of the grass and it's leaving enough what's called a photosynthetic um, leaf to continue to function. And the first response of a stressed cool season plant that has received a grazing like that it grabs sunlight and it pours the vast majority of the sugars it creates into the soil where it can tease out from a myriad of microbes, like on the on the interaction level of trillions, where it can tease out what it's going to need to heal. This is the wounded healer. Finds its wellness by not only appealing to, but feeding the community that's going to help it restore. Mm. It's it's 1,000% symbiotic. And if you look at your congregation and think, okay, you know what this place needs? This place needs a little stress. You know, and to allow it, and not just, you can't manufacture it with like a set of scissors. It has to be a tugging 
And there has to be some saliva. These two things, the, the saliva of the animal and the tugging on the whole plant takes it right to the roots and it evokes a response. And uh, you can't manufacture it. You got to let it happen. And uh, I would say you can look at your congregations this way and say, okay, well, what kind of natural stresses do we have around here that are shaking us right to the roots? And who are the people that in response to that are oozing out the best, sweetest stuff to appeal to the community that's going to help us respond to this so that we can grow another year. All right. If you can't story. get something yeah. good out of that, I got nothing better. Oh, Tim, that's great. It's great. You know what? You probably are familiar with, I think his name was Wallabin. He wrote a book called The Secret Life of Trees. Well, that rings any bells. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Th this is about church because he was a an arborist, right? He was trained to basically take care of trees. But the way he took care of trees, because he worked for a timber company, was how do you best line them up so they grow the fastest in order to produce the most bored feet of planks, right? And and, yep. and and I go, that's the way most pastors are trained, right? And then one day, it's more complex than this, he's leaning against a tree and he notices a great, big, huge, what I would call mushroom growing in the tree. And that triggered something just like the farming thing was triggered in you. And he began to discover and realize that underneath it all, there was a whole life going on that had nothing to do with bored feet. But if you paid attention to that whole life, then the, the, the gift of the trees and the whole thing comes out. And I think that's what you're trying to get at is that um, there's so much going on on the ground, in the ordinary. And how do we as clergy who've been trained to program, to structure, to vision, to innovate, how do we lay that stuff down to see what's going on on the ground? This has been so great, Tim. There's so many lines from what you've said that I think are going to really excite people who will listen to this. So thank you so much for giving us your time today and sharing your story with us. Thanks for uh, your interest and, and really thank you for this project. I've, I've gleaned so much from the Leaving Egypt group. I've taken great encouragement from it. And that is a big part of what's sustaining me to uh, stick on this uh, God-centered task of, of being faithful on the land. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Tim. You've been a gift to us and you've certainly press the buttons in my imagination in all kinds of ways. So thank you and God bless. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon.